everybody. Thanks for joining me today. This is Mark Scott, and this is another episode of Closer Than You Think. Our sixth episode of the Closer Than You Think podcast on Substack continues our 10-part series on the book, You Don't Have to Do That. This episode looks at the role of pastors or clergy. Most of the church structure as we know it in Christian circles in this part of the world is based upon a clergy-laity distinction, meaning that we distinguish between the clergy or church leadership that goes by different names, whether it's bishops, priests, pastors, these church leaders, and we distinguish them from the rest of the people, the common people, the lay people, the laity, the church members. So there's a leadership membership distinction most of the time in the church structures as we have them set up. We have pastors or priests than all the rest of us. Is this the best way to set up the church? Is this conducive to spiritual growth? Why does it seem that we are constantly hearing stories of abusive leadership in big churches, or small churches for that matter? So here we go, digging into chapter 5, which is entitled, The Ordinary Are the Ordained. Now, special note to pastors as we jump into this, I would love to hear from you. <clears throat> and a disclaimer right off the bat, too, that this one is really tough one. This is maybe the toughest uh, topic so far that I'm addressing like this because pastors and church leaders have a special place in my heart. I have a special place in my heart for you if you're listening and you're a pastor or a leader, especially those of you who are struggling with this topic and have an inner struggle going on with what your role looks like and what it should be and how you are serving God in that way. As with everything in this book, the title of the book is You Don't Have to Do That. In most cases, it's not Don't Do That, although I will say this chapter is going to be the toughest one in terms of me breaking down or deconstructing this particular role that we find in the church. Now, I'm not trying to talk people out of their calling, but I also can't deny mine, which is to reflect on this honestly, and I can't pretend that facts don't exist. It's important to be honest as we reflect on the data, and that data starts with the biblical text itself. Now, in the previous chapters that we have talked about in this book, as I write, I talked already about the chapter on the church and how we have set it up like a business despite no scriptural evidence that it should be done that way. It is really a cultural concoction in a sense. Now you can take in some history and some tradition all the way back for centuries, but it's still not something Jesus came along and said, do it this way, and that's what we have today. And then the chapter that addresses the Bible to take the Bible seriously, we have to read it as it is and take it seriously in what it teaches. And then the last chapter we looked at was about spiritual growth and discipleship. And it was the one that I said was the crux of the matter because if we don't grow closer to God, if we don't grow spiritually like God says we do, and, and we're doing that differently than what he has laid out, um, that's a problem. 
and we have presented spiritual growth as though we grow in our faith through training and through education classes and through lots of cognitive exercises. So the more we know, the closer we are to God. And it just isn't found that way in the Bible itself. So all of that leads us to an organizational setup, an organization that has a hierarchy to it. And now that brings us to the leadership piece because we have to have church government, we have to have church leaders, and that may be called by different names, like I said, presbyters, uh, priests, bishops, overseers, deacons, pastors, clergy, whatever name your particular flavor of Christianity uses, whether you're in a mainstream, mainline denomination or not, um, all of that kind of gets lumped together in what I'm talking about here. And so we have that that we're addressing in this episode and in this chapter of the book. And then finally, the last piece we will deconstruct in the next chapter is that you got to pay for all this stuff. You have to find a way somehow to finance this whole enterprise. And so we're going to look at tithing and giving in the next chapter. Now, to be totally transparent in my bio, you would find that I have been an ordained pastor for a long part of my career and ministry. Um, it wasn't until just recently that I actually gave up or turned in my credentials, and that's what it's called in my particular denomination. Um, I held on to them for a long time, even while wrestling with this, uh, because quite frankly, I kind of viewed it the way uh, Paul viewed his Roman citizenship. It was a nice card to play when you need it. And in our society, it is still looked upon favorably by many people. And it still does give you access to things and authority in certain situations that are helpful. And so if there are people that are struggling with this and they still want that title of pastor or minister, um, I don't blame them for holding on to that as long as they can. One area in particular, it gives you access to people in jail uh, if you're wanting to visit someone or wanting to minister to people in crisis, or um, things like that, then you have more access and more opportunity to serve, whether it's in hospitals or um, different agencies. And so um, people are, respect you more and seem to give more credence to you in, in difficult situations when you're walking with people through the death of a loved one, for example, things like that. There's chaplaincy ministries that are very powerful and important. So I um, am transparent in saying that I get where people are at all different stages of this. And um, this is not me trying to talk someone out of their calling. Like I said before, my calling in particular, I mentioned this in the book, is interesting because it doesn't, I never felt like it was specifically, particularly a call to church pastor ministry per se, although that was one of the avenues I definitely sought out to carry out my ministry or calling to young people and their families. So with all that being said, let's move on and talk about where we are with the state of things. So there's a group called Barna, Barna Research Group, that does a lot of work with church research and pastors in particular. Recent data collected from Barna's pastor poll indicated that U.S. pastors are currently in crisis and at risk of burnout. So the most recent research was done in 2021, so it's very recent. 
That was a follow-up to some uh, big studies that they had done in 2017 as well. In 2021 alone, there has been a dramatic increase in the number of pastors who are thinking about quitting ministry entirely. So what I'm going to share with you are excerpts from the summary from the Barna Group on this research. Nearly two in five pastors have considered quitting full-time ministry is the headline for this part. Um, With pastors' well-being on the line and many on the brink of burnout, 38% indicate they have considered quitting full-time ministry within the past year. This percentage is up nine full points since Barna asked church leaders this same question at the beginning of 2021. So from January to October, there was an increase from 29% to 38% of pastors saying, yeah, I'm considering quitting this thing altogether. That's pretty dramatic. Now, I will say that there has been a lot of issues with burnout throughout. In fact, I reference other data in the book, and the book was published at the time that this other research was coming out. So um, I have older data in the book, so it's it's been a long-term process. This problem, this has been an ongoing issue um, for, for quite a while. However, I do want to add that in the last few years, there's been a, a, another huge factor involved, and that's the political factor. And there is evidence that shows the Trump effect and other political pressure on pastors that are putting them in impossible situations due to these false dichotomies uh, that are out there. Again, There's a misunderstanding here, as I've referenced in a previous episode, that the litmus test for the Christian faith is whether one takes a stand on conservative or liberal positions, political positions, rather than demonstrating the fruit of the Spirit and love toward others. We're using the wrong litmus test for people's faith and and people's allegiance and people's uh, loyalty and faithfulness to the call of God. We're using the wrong scale, the wrong measurement, the wrong metric, if you will. And so in particular, pastors have been put in positions where they have to take positions agreeing with or going against certain political personalities. And when they do so, it costs them and it costs their ministry sometimes. And so a lot of that we are seeing evidence and some data in polling of pastors that shows that that's a big factor in why they want to get out of the ministry sometimes. So there's a deeper analysis that's necessary of some of this data. I'm going to share a couple of those points that they share. One of the more alarming findings, this is a quote from the Barna Group, one of the more alarming findings is that 46% of pastors under the age of 45 say they are considering quitting full-time ministry. So while the numbers are high with two two out of five, um, really it's almost half of pastors that are under the age of 45. So half of younger pastors are considering quitting. Another note, with pastors from mainline denominations, they are far more likely to consider quitting than those from non-mainline denominations. That's a 51 to 34% uh, breakdown there. Female pastors are far more likely than male pastors to have considered giving up full-time ministry as well. So to wrap this up with the data and and where we stand with that, I want to read the quote. Oh, no, sorry, sorry. Uh, Just a second, I'm going to share that with you. Let me share this one other bit first. 
Only one in three pastors is considered healthy in terms of well-being. Barna has long been checking in on pastors' well-being, even addressing their burnout risk. And that references back to the 2017 study that I mentioned. More recently, October 2021 data show that many pastors are not faring well in multiple categories of well-being, including spiritual, physical, emotional, vocational, and financial. Barna defined healthy pastors as those who score themselves. So this is self-reporting data from pastors as scoring themselves as either excellent or good on all six well-being categories. Currently, only 35% of America's pastors fall into the healthy category. <clears throat> I will link in the show notes the, the link to that summary of the data, and it includes some graphs in there as well, if, if you're more inclined to the visual aspect of the data, and that um, is easier for you to understand. So those are there for you in the show notes. Now I, w- I do want to close this part by quoting directly from the president of the Barna Group, David Kinnaman. And this is what he states. This is a growing crisis for church leaders in America. Now is the time for the Christian community to come alongside their pastors to pray and support them so they can continue to lead in healthy ways. Pastors, too, need to proactively guard their health and well-being, taking a holistic assessment of how they are doing. So listen to what he is saying, where his perspective is coming from, that this pastoral role needs to be protected and lifted up in prayer in in certain ways. So here's the rest of his quote. Navigating these existential questions of calling and ministry career fit are significant and will shape the future of congregational leadership for the future. More than ever, the church needs resilient leaders who are humble, agile, rooted in prayer, and who are committed to being healthy as an essential aspect of effective leadership. So yes, here's what I will say to that. Yes, if you are going to stay in pastoral ministry, I want you to be healthy. But what I'm going to do now is take a different angle on what all of this means and what all of this exposes for us. Could it be that we have carefully created and crafted this position that is not meant to function like we think it should? So now I'm going to turn to the book and what I wrote in this chapter, page 67, and read a few excerpts here in this episode. This is from page 67. The heading is only one time. And so here's my take on this. It may come as a shock to you, as it did for me, when I discovered the fact that the English translation of the New Testament contains the word pastors only once. One time. In its plural form. There is no verse in the Bible that says, quote, a pastor is dot, 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 or, quote, a pastor does dot, 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 or, quote, a pastor should always dot, dot, dot. Think about that. I went through an entire ministerial course of study 
and college-level classes on the Bible and theology, and yet I never knew this until it was pointed out to me years later. I assumed that the Bible clearly outlined the job description of a pastor because my denomination had done so. It was used to evaluate my effectiveness and my faithfulness to the call. Everything then, everything then we say a pastor must do or is responsible for is made up by us. Now, to be fair, not all of it is made up out of thin air. There are scriptural references used to justify many impressions about pastors, but they all require some interpretation and they still leave us with many diverse opinions. Moreover, none of them address the elephant in the room, which is whether the role is even necessary or helpful. Okay, so in the book, I then uh, include a table that lists out all kinds of duties and responsibilities according to um, some church manuals that I go through. And in these manuals, it has all kinds of things, preaching the word, praying, administering the Lord's Supper, baptizing, correcting, rebuking, encouraging, um, officiating weddings, appointing Sunday school teachers, signing legal documents, all, all kinds of things that are on, on the list here in this table. And it's got some footnotes in it. And, and what I then do is say, who has this duty in the Bible and, re and the biblical references for that. So I'm going to keep going um, <clears throat> and share one other thing here that we find from that table, just the summary of it. So this is on page 68. What becomes apparent from a survey of the New Testament is there is literally not one thing in the community of Christian faith that is left solely for a pastor to do. All practices that are essential to any role in the church body are meant to be easily reproduced and multiplied throughout the church body. Accumulating numerous responsibilities in one office or role runs contrary to the organic nature of the church. All right, you might hear some pages rustling. I do have the actual book here. A couple more things that I want to wrap up with. <clears throat> Page 70, here's what I write. I'm referencing John chapter 10, and in John 10, it says, there shall be one flock and one shepherd. And then I write, one shepherd, one flock. The role of shepherd, the one who guides and cares for the sheep, is taken. It is an occupied position, and there is no need for anyone else to apply. Then on page 71, just to, to close us out here, the practice of one person alone being responsible for the spiritual and emotional care of a group of people by preaching week in and week out, organizing all of the programs, and directing the affairs of the church is starkly absent from the New Testament for good reason. It doesn't work. It shouldn't work. Instead, Apostles planted churches and raised up leaders, plural, who could be recognized as elders from within the body. All church meetings were interactive and participatory. 
Paul's advice to the church of Corinth was all about how love is expressed in a manner where everyone is able to bring a hymn, word of instruction, revelation, or interpretation. There is mutual ministry of teaching and learning. The preaching and instruction are carried out by the people for the people. By the laity. All right, so those are the excerpts from the book that I wanted to share. And although it may sound like my goal here is to bring the clergy down, what I really hope for and what I really want is to actually raise the laity up. The ordinary, everyday, common folk are those who are ordained, appointed and anointed and commissioned by God to carry out the work of the kingdom. The hierarchy that we have set up does not enhance the work. It gets in the way of it. It is a costly distraction in most cases, and we idolize it to our own peril. Our, our elevation of church leaders and celebrity pastors over the years has come back to bite us time and time again because it is simply not meant to be that way. Every time we look to a human, a flawed, fallible personality to be our guide through all things related to faith and truth, to quote-unquote shepherd us in that way, we set the person and ourselves up for failure and disappointment. All right, the, now what I usually don't do in these episodes that I want to do just to wrap this up is go to the end of the book. I've mentioned it a couple times, but this is going to be a little more uh, in-depth. Uh, this is a heavily footnoted chapter of the book with some references, but also with some additional commentary in the back of the book. So what I'm going to do is just kind of almost out of context, read a couple of those end notes to you to wrap this up because it brings in other aspects of, of church practices and our expressions of faith. <clears throat> so I wanted to uh, share these with you. So let me just run through these real quick. First of all, one can see in the New Testament that preaching of the word or preaching the gospel occurs before and without any formal office of pastor existing. The point is not that there aren't people sometimes set apart for this purpose, but that it is not meant to be left as the permanent job of one individual in a church community. The epistle or letter of 2 Timothy may come closest to making a case for this kind of pastoral position, so I concede that point and acknowledge that. Another note, the Lord's Supper is sometimes called by other names, such as communion, Eucharist, Passover meal. The Gospels describe Jesus bringing new context to the Passover meal with his disciplines in a unique, one-time event. There is little in the New Testament outlining responsibilities or designating roles in relation to serving the Lord's Supper. What we do find significantly is that it is indeed a meal. There is no record of it being an isolated activity apart from a meal. So this common practice today of including a moment for a bite of bread or a wafer and a sip of wine or juice is foreign to the New Testament. Once we put, in it, put it in the context of an entire meal, even with all its symbolism from the Passover, we see that it is a shared experience. 1 Corinthians 11, verses 17 through 34, and John 21 imply the breaking of bread 
along with eating or drinking other items together. People are serving one another. Another note, when studying various New Testament passages related to baptism, it is fascinating to see how many different kinds of people baptized other people and that no two accounts seem to be identical. Not one of the baptism accounts or teachings in the Bible involves a designated pastor role. Yet today, it is common for church institutions to require pastoral licenses or credentials to perform a baptism. The scriptures related to this topic, I'll run through them very quickly. Mark 1, verses 1 through 13. Luke 3, verses 1 through 22. Matthew 28, verses 18 through 20. John chapter 3, verses... Uh, I'm sorry, chapter 3, verse 22 through chapter 4, verse 2. Acts chapter 2, verses 36 through 41. Acts chapter 8, verses 9 through 17. Acts, uh, and also verses 26 through 40 of Acts 8. Acts chapter 10, verses 34 through 48. Acts chapter 16, verses 11 through 15 and verses 29 through 34. And Acts chapter 18, verses 5 through 8. I'm going to list out all of these notes in the show notes for you. So if you want to look up any of those, and cross-reference them, you can. I also highly recommend a book called Church 3.0 by Neil Cole, who addresses some interesting perspective on the Lord's Supper and baptism as well. And then finally, uh, one more note. I acknowledge that 1 Peter 5 uses shepherd in some translations and directs some believers to provide oversight, but even in this passage, there is emphasis on the distinction between human shepherds and Jesus as the chief shepherd. Furthermore, the guidance is about resisting the desire to rule over others and remaining humble. So I wanted to share those additional notes with you. I certainly welcome any pushback on this topic. If you are listening to this and you are friends with a pastor and you want to share this with them, either for their benefit or for them to refute it and argue against it and push back, um, that would be great. Go ahead and share it with them and see if they would be open to talking with me. What I would love to do in a future episode is interview some pastors or have a panel together where we can talk through some of these things. As always, you if you'd like to explore any of these topics in greater depth, then you can leave a comment on any of the episodes and you can learn more about Simple Church Practices at a website called Grace in Motion, which is linked in the show notes. Please... Um, support this work by subscribing and sharing to Substack here Closer Than You Think. Uh, go to Amazon, get the book, post a review of the book if you want to do so. All the information about how to get the book is there for you. And then finally, above all else, more than anything else, use whatever knowledge, inspiration, or resources you might find in any of this content to help others around you realize God is for them. Thanks so much. Have a